Uh, Ann Johnson, would you pray for us? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our beautiful day. Thank you for the blessing of being able to meet and worship you in public and not be worried about being harassed or shot at. But we thank you for that. We thank you for this church, what it stands for, your word. All the people involved from the music on up. So bless this time together today. May we learn something new that will add to our understanding and love of you. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, so we covered Judges. Hello, everyone, by the way. Good morning. We covered Judges and Ruth last time. Okay, so Samson is one of the last judges, but I actually do believe that he is a contemporary of Eli's. Mm. Um, part of why you don't hear too much about the Philistines early on is because they're, in, in this chapter, is they're, they're in the ascendancy, but I think partially why they go to war against Israel is because of what Samson has done by knocking the pillars down, knocking the house down. Yeah. So, so there's kind of this in-between in period. Um, people think that the period of Judges ends at the end of Judges, but that's not true. The book of Ruth is, takes place during Judges, and First Samuel, the first chapters of it, take place during Judges. Because Samuel is, in fact, the last judge. So uh, you can see in the life of Eli, uh, poor, poor fat Eli, um, how does his life, how does the patterns of his life fit with the patterns from the book of Judges. Remember the pattern in the book of Judges. What was the pattern in the book of Judges? Things to be good, then they'd fall into moral decline, then God would get their attention by sending enemies, then yeah. they repent. And start the whole thing over again. And you can see this between uh, Eli and Samuel, right? You see this pattern again. Eli is clearly on the downgrade Right, he, he's stealing God's fat out of the pot. His sons are sleeping with the women in the temple or tabernacle. He goes to the tabernacle. He can't tell the difference between a drunk woman and a woman who's distressed in prayer. Mm -hmm. One of our ironic moments. He is supposed to be discerning. He is not discerning. Okay, so so his sons take the ark out and as like a sort of talisman. Uh, they take their lucky rabbit's foot ark out to battle, and that doesn't go very well for them. And, and we have here another uh, exile story. But who goes into exile after the battle with the Philistines? The Israelites don't go into exile. Somebody else goes into exile. God. God himself. Okay, so in that, that bit of the story, it's interesting because it, he has another exodus. Um, but instead of going and delivering his people from foreign gods, he himself, his ark, his throne is put into a temple with no, no gods, you know, no gods is what I call uh, false gods. Uh, so no gods are there, and he, he topples Dagon. <laughs> uh, he falls into pieces. So he's throwing down the gods of his enemies and then delivering himself through a series of miracles. So it's God himself who goes into exile and then is brought back into the land through an exodus. And so that, you can see how the patterns that we've been studying uh, are, are beginning to appear but now what you have is like things on top of one another so you have the judges pattern going on you have 
um, an Exodus pattern over the top of it. And Israel, you can see now the story is becoming quite layered. So I find by the time you get to the book of Kings, um, there, there are just like, there are, one character can serve as like a type of several different people. Um, uh, so we're going to see this with Saul. Saul is a sort of Gideon. Gideon is the one that, um, Gideon, I'm sorry, Gideon is the one that a lot of people are compared to. Um, and that's either sometimes positive and sometimes negative, but you can see that the story is beginning to be quite layered. Now, this in-between transitional period between the judges and David, we can see is full of labor pains. Um, a new world is being born, and the midwife of that new world is actually Samuel. Samuel, the midwife. Uh, <laughs> if I was going to do a series just on him, that's what I'd call it, because he's bringing forth this new world. Um, he, he's the bridge. And what we see in him, with him is, is he, he's faithful in everything but one important thing. And what is that one important thing that he, he himself was not faithful in? You guys remember? Samuel? Yeah, Samuel. He has one problem. One massive problem. I think his children. His children. Yes, okay. So this is what we were talking about before. It does not matter how much good you do for Israel. It, it, in, in the end, if you cannot pass it on to the next generation, uh, you have serious problems. And so God is working through that. I mean, this is working with parents whose children um, don't turn out the way they had hoped. You can see that God, through, through this suffering and difficulty that Samuel has personally, God is working through it to bring about something greater. Uh, and, and that's sometimes comforting. <laughs> um, but it's hard, right? I mean, those, those trials and tribulations. Um, Samuel is an interesting character. Why, why, why do you think, like, why? Why would he be so devoted to God but fail so spectacularly with his children? Um, because he's not the first one uh, who's done this, and he's not the last one who's going to do it. So, so what, what do you think about that? Like, why, what do you think must have happened? If you, well, if you they, read the story. Both, uh, both Saul and David... Solomon, yeah, um, wrote a, an Old Testament law set down, I think, by Moses that you shouldn't have more than one wife. Okay, so those two, they, they, they that was a those problem three. in those. Yeah. <laughs> well, Samuel specifically, it doesn't actually tell us. That's actually what troubles me the most. Is that he's so great all the way through it, and then no matter how awesome he is, it never really tells us why. Like, was he just not home enough, right? Is he, as he's out traveling around finding new kings for Israel, he, he should have been at home playing big catch with his son. Like, I don't, I mean, <laughs> um, you have to be very, very careful raising up sons who are, assume they're going to take over for you. Eli's sons thought that. I think Samuel's sons also thought that. Okay. Samuel's dad have more than one wife, too? Uh, yes, Samuel's dad also had more than one wife. Seems to me problematic. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and you can see the home environment, right, that they were raised in, because they're, and, and if, if, again, if, if we understand that it's the time of the judges, we understand that marriage in Israel was not exactly uh, the solid institution that it was supposed to be, because um, Samuel is actually a Kohathite, uh, the Kohathites, they, they are the servants of the tabernacle, so he, he's a priest, he's in the priestly f line, and so his father has more than one wife, and we, 
it, it makes us think of the Levite at the end of the book of Judges, right? The Levite has a wife, he has concubines, yeah, they're messing around in ways they shouldn't. So you can see, generally speaking, uh, marriage has is sort of has declined. And and what what they're, what I would say is that you can see the surrounding culture is affecting the Israelites because the Israelites are given a commandment, right? One man, one woman, one marriage, one lifetime. I think it's very clear. Um, but, but they're susceptible to this. Now, culturally, it was acceptable outside of Israel. But why, why would a man actually want more than one wife? Like, um, economically, why? Why do you guys think? Uh, well, a lot of it was done for treaties, and women were treated as chattel, so you could trade them for a treaty with another country. Yeah, even if they aren't treated like cattle. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, chattel, cattle. Um, I like they. They were not all necessarily treated that way, but you, they would be used to make alliances between families, right? I mean, all the way down until the present, certain families. Um, I was just reading about the Plantagenets, right, and their Hundred Years' War, and they and they brought the they brought the, the War of the Roses to a close after thirty years by marrying the two families, and so you would see that. But I would say economically, and this is partially why it's important for us to think about this. These men were not just a bunch of sex-crazed madmen. I think, I think what we're used to doing is, is just sort of demonizing them. Um, if you're a king and you're trying to make uh, alliances with a lot, it's very tempting, right? If, if, if the number of wives you have signifies the amount of power you have, you can see why they would do it. Now, if you're also a herdsman, uh, you need employees, <laughs> and so you're going to... Uh, produce those employees by having children, as we saw with Jacob, right? And so the more children you have, the more herds you can own. Um, so there is, like, actual economic reasons people would do this. But it just is, is so interesting to me that Jesus, one of the first things he comes along is he wants to set straight the institution of marriage. Because I think it had a long history of, of being an abuse within Israel. They did not understand their relationship to God, being wedded to Yahweh, and, and you can see it in things like this. And I think Samuel probably would, didn't have a great home life because you can see he was not raised in a great home life. Okay, the Kohathites were not pure at this time. So another interesting thing, just going on with Samuel, is you see him actually, uh, in the early part of the story, he's a priest. Okay, and then um, he, he becomes a prophet sort of later on. Uh, in, the, in the early stages, when he's in Eli's house, he receives a word from the Lord. He gives a prophetic word, but then you kinda, he kind of goes back and forth between these offices. Now, can you guys think of anybody else yet? up to this up to this point in the story who's had both offices? It's usually been priests or it's been prophets. Usually, they're not one and the same. Can you guys think of one other guy? Aaron. Aaron. There you go. I was going to say Moses. Moses, yeah. Both of them were both priests and prophets, right? Because they spoke the prophetic word and they also uh, offered sacrifices in the, in the tabernacle. Um, so it, Samuel is very interesting because he's like a new Moses, I think. Uh, there's a number of things that are very similar. The multiple offices uh, is one thing. The other one is... Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, he's called a seer, which is which is interesting. This is what they used to call prophets in these days. Um, and I think it's fascinating that he is a seer when Eli is going blind. Eli, it says, is going blind, but um, Samuel can see. 
Now, I think that that's very interesting. I like this kind of stuff um, because you can see that the, the authors are doing some very deep things with that kind of, right? I don't think that's a coincidence that one guy is going blind, one guy is a seer. So uh, Samuel is also a, a, a judge. Samuel is born to a barren woman like Samson. He's consecrated as a Nazarite. Uh, but unlike Samson, he actually devotes himself to it. Now, what's a Nazarite? You remember Nazarites? Well, say it's these hippie dudes, but no, they did not, <laughs> <laughs> they did not cut their hair because they were devoted to God. Yeah, they didn't cut their hair. They, wine, they didn't drink wine. Right. They didn't even eat grapes. Um, now, unlike Samson, Samuel didn't have long hair that gave him strength, uh, but he is a Nazarite. And I know there, there's a sect of Christianity where they take Nazarites and Jesus of Nazareth, and they, and they somehow conflate these things. Yeah. And they have some very weird practices where they, yeah, it's very strange. It's a strange group. But a Nazarite is, is a, someone who's devoted utterly to God. Now, can you guys think of a Nazarite in the New Testament? A Nazarite? There is one. Uh, and it doesn't say it, and yeah. Paul. And Paul, ooh. Was he? Okay, he no. took a temporary Nazarite vow, uh -huh. which and not all Nazarite vows were for life. Right, right, mm. right. Now, where did you get that information from? Yes. I know, that's why I'm not I forget where I just said. Somewhere in the New Testament. But yeah, that's a, that's a good one. So it never actually says that they're Nazarites. But you can tell based on what John the Baptist, right. sorry, John the Presbyterian and um, <laughs> Paul are doing... <laughs> That uh, <laughs> that they are both um, taking these vows. Why was he out at the river? Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. think he could sprinkle people in, in, in the city. He needed more water, I think. Yeah. John the Baptizer. <laughs> John the Baptizer. There you go. John, definitely not the Pentecostal. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, so you can see that these uh, men are... Uh, this Nazarite thing doesn't go away. It's, it's kind of there in the early part of the Old Testament, um, but you have to sort of be looking for the clues later on because you're correct, both John and Paul. Okay, so um, now if you turn to Deuteronomy 17 with me. Deuteronomy 17. We are given some very interesting information. Deuteronomy... 17, laws concerning Israel's kings. Okay, so way back in Deuteronomy, God is already setting up the fact that there's going to be kings. It's assumed all along that there will, in fact, be kings. It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, uh, most likely chapters 1 through 30, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it at all the days of his life, and that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them, that, uh, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, 
and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, there's an, quite a bit to be said about this. One, this is constitutional monarchy here. This is a constitutional monarchy. And this, this is an important doctrine. Later, Samuel Rutherford is going to write a, a book later on in history called Lex Rex, The Law is King. This is why in the United States we consider ourselves a land of laws and not men. Because even if you, a king is supposed to have a copy of the law, he's supposed to read it regularly, and he himself is supposed to submit to it. Right? Just because you're the anointed of the Lord does not mean that you do not have to follow the law. The law is above you. Okay? Now, does David act that way towards the law? Yes. He acts like the law is above him until he doesn't. Right? <laughs> right? And, I, and so it's very, very dangerous uh, when a man has a lot of power. Okay? And so what God is listing here is a bunch of things that make men powerful, that make men think they don't need God. And when you start to think you don't need God, when you start to think you are God, what you do is you, you no longer submit yourself to the law of God. Now, um, our government is, is based on this idea from Deuteronomy. The United States Republic, we are a constitutional republic. Um, the president is not above the law. The judges are not supposed to be above the law. Now we know, <laughs> right? A bigger den of vipers I don't think has ever existed outside of Congress. Um, but this is the argument for uh, resistance when it comes to leaders. When you have a leader who, you, when it comes time to resist leaders, the reason we're doing it is because what we're actually appealing to is, is the law. The, the law is king in the United States. So when Peter says, you know, be subject to the king, I, I hear that and I hear the word constitution. Right? I am, I am, I'm supposed to submit myself to the constitution as an American, not, and, and to the president only so far as he submits to the constitution. Does this make sense? Uh, it's the same thing in the state of Washington. Yeah. yeah. What's that? It makes total sense. It makes total sense. Yeah. 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 Uh, I ran two red lights on the way here, though, so I apologize to everyone. <laughs> they were yellow red. Um, but I did not obey the king. He has every reason to tell me not to run lights, but I did. So I wanted to confess that to you. I don't want everyone to do I, I, I sometimes try to resist this idea that I'm a scofflaw. I was scoffing at those laws at the time, but I feel real bad about it. You just waited. That was wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, kids, close your eyes so you don't see your father's sin. Avert <laughs> <laughs> your eyes, children. Now, can you guys think of stories later on with the kings of Israel where they do the very things that God says not to do? Right? What well, to do ought not to do. Ought not to do. He says, don't do these things. Now, can we name some kings that actually do these things? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sol yeah, yeah. Deep breath. So David and Solomon both have wives. Uh, the the wives specifically lead Solomon astray. Uh, he heaps up gold and silver, and that becomes right. I mean, silver becomes something that they're like playing ducks and drakes with it uh, down on the Jordan River because uh, it's very common there. Um, so he, he becomes very rich. At what, later on, the kings do actually try to return to Egypt for war horses and to become subject to them again, even though God said don't go that way. So what, what you'll see over the books of Samuel and Kings is all of these things play out, and that's why the history was written, because the Deuteronomistic history was written so that people would see why they've ended up in exile. Okay, Here's what God said in Deuteronomy, and here's how 
it played out. Yeah, and like later on, there is, remember one of my favorite stories, is it Josiah's Reforms, where they find a copy of Deuteronomy in the, <laughs> like in the basement? <laughs> They're like, oh, we shook out this one jug, and uh, nobody's opened it since Moses' day. And uh, yeah, they find the, the Deuteronomy and they read it. And so this is why like the president of the United States should have his constitution bedside, read it every day. I love that in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, they're all terrified of this Ark. But what has got in this Ten Commandments? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, what, yeah, and, and then they take the lid off, and what actually comes out is like weird spirits and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The guy's face melts. The guy's face melts, yes. <laughs> I know, my kids. That's in Maccabees, you know. Yeah, that's in Maccabees. <laughs> <laughs> I also like later in. Uh, last of the crusades he's like walking along with the torch and, and she's like he goes that's the ark and she goes are you sure and he goes trust me because <laughs> he's seen it before okay so kings you are not allowed to have multi- to multiply horses and chariots you're not allowed to multiply wives you are not allowed to multiply gold and silver the way that Samuel in- interprets this is he says that the king is going to be a taker so then that becomes a theme right uh, we see that David takes Bathsheba. David then takes the life of Uriah. David is, becomes a taker, uh, and that's what he has to repent of. What are some ways that Saul is a taker? Can you guys think of some ways? He wants to take David's life. Well, he wants to take David's yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. He took yeah. the sheep when he wasn't supposed to. Uh, yeah, he took, he took uh, the swag from uh, when he was supposed to be devoting things. Yeah, again. Uh, like, other than the normal things, all the kings levy tax, additional taxes, right? Yeah. To their son, yeah. You know, their people's sons or you know, their servants. Yeah. Yeah, so you can see that, that taking now becomes a theme to add on to all of our other themes. Okay? So um, it's not wrong for Israel to ask for a king uh, necessarily. God says you're going to ask for a king. Um, but what, what is wrong with the way that Israel asks for a king? Because I think they could have gone about it in a way where because God would be like, be like other nations. Because they want to be like other nations because they had a king, Yahweh. Okay, they didn't say, Yahweh, oh great and and most powerful one, please give us a representative here on earth that will represent you. I think Yahweh would have uh, gone with that appeal. <laughs> or we've been reading and there's that bit about the scepter will not depart from Judah. Yeah. And, and we'd really like it king from the house of Judah yeah. with a scepter. Yeah, there you go. That would have also worked. God would have been like, oh, I'll get right on that. Let's make a scepter. No. But what, what they want, they, they're jealous of the nations. Okay, They're envy of the nations. They're, they're, they want someone that's going to take them out. They don't realize the pattern. All through Judges, when they return to the Lord, he defends them. And he raises up someone. Um, and so here, they're not crying out to God to be delivered from distress. They're crying out to God because they want what the nations have. And so um, the, the king now, as the way it goes down, the way God gives him the king, the king himself is judgment on Israel and will be uh, for the duration that they have them. Um, right down until Jesus. Right? All the kings, even the ones that are good, because there are some that I would say are good, uh, all of them, even them, they don't go far enough. Nobody ever goes far enough. Everybody is uh, broken. Everybody is false. It's interesting because they were supposed to be different and separate from the nations. They wanted to be, they wanted to, you know, yeah. the opposite way and be like the nations. Like, yeah. no, you're supposed to be set apart. You're supposed to be set apart. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, I mean. Good thing we don't have that problem anymore. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that was my next question. Can you guys think think of some ways where we do the same thing? Where we think, you know, we want to be like the world. We want to be like the nations. We want to be ruled like the nations. I would. I, I mean, I see this kind of stuff in the way churches organize themselves, where they, you know, the pastor's a CEO and, and the board of directors. Um, I, I remember this under um, Mark Mark Driscoll. I, I mean, I never. Again, I, I like to say it, I never had a problem with Mark. It was all the other guys. <laughs> it was the other elders that I had trouble with, because they ran the thing like. In a very unhealthy way. I was talking to Steve Brown, and he was he was relaying some lessons he's learned over the years, and they were part of this thing called the discipleship movement uh, in the eighties, seventies, and eighties. And like literally, like so, you're discipling me. So I come to you, and I'm like, hey, I'm going to buy my family a new car, and I can't do it if you don't give me permission. <laughs> and so it starts with like you seeking wisdom from older, wiser Christians, and it ends with. Um, you, 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 you're literally everything is being dictated to you by this by this other person. So some of the folks here, when we when I start talking about generations discipling other generations, you can see cringe on their face um, because they remember this and right and that's not what we want, right? right. That's not what we want. Um, but I think churches are run like businesses. I, I think they're considered. They, we think of ourselves as social clubs. We think of ourselves as a business. And so you run into all kinds of trouble. And then what pastors think they need to do is learn how to run a business in order how to run a church. And what they don't understand is shepherding is not running a business, right? Um, and then they start. you start reading. I go to a pastor's offices. I've fallen for this before myself. Right? You go and you have like a whole shelf like this of like how to grow the business, right? <laughs> how to cause the revival, how to get people, how to, how to, how to bring people in, how to be sticky. Sticky Church was a book I've read. And I, I, I've read a ton of these books. And then I read this book about a pastor. A pastor was saying that he took over this church. And you could see, like, the, the, the previous pastor's library was, like, solid theologians at first. And it's like it was like a timeline of his failure. <laughs> and down towards the end of the book, it was just, like, all of these business books. Because as, th- as, as things didn't go the way he wanted, he tried and harder and harder and harder and harder to attain things the way he got not to attain. And I think this is a modern way that churches um, apply this principle. We, we want to be run like Microsoft. We want to be, right? We want to be, we want to, there's social programs out there and so and clubs, and we want to be run just like those, right? I mean, how, how, how does the Seattle Opera House make all that money, that nonprofit? We want to be run like that. And I've actually been given books on how to run a, a nonprofit because we're a nonprofit. Um, <laughs> And, and all of that stuff, all of that stuff is, an, is a, I'm not going to say necessary even because I hate that phrase. All of that stuff exists. Like all the administrative stuff you have to do when you have a church exists. But that's not why we're here. It, it's, an unnece- it's a necessity that can easily become the centerpiece of why we're here. Okay. So what are some other ways um, that churches apply this? Uh, well, we, we, we act like the kings of old and we become takers. Okay? How, how do we do this? Welcome to Big Eva. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the uh, pastor decides that the, uh, the way to get promotion, to get ahead, yeah. to become a bigger deal, is that you have to build a following and an influence mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. of 
the local church. Yeah. And so it's more an issue of what's going to get you on that conference stage, what will get you the article in the mm-hmm. Gospel Coalition, mm-hmm. what, when you the transcend field. that, and yeah. you're Tim Keller, will get you the article in the Atlantic. Yeah. Because no one else gets access right. to writing in the Atlantic. Right. And what are you chasing? Yeah. What are you chasing at that point? It's true. I remember when I was, uh, so in my previous life, uh, before the Lord got hold of me, so I, I, I was trying to become a published poet, and, and there was a process. Like, I, there were certain benchmarks I had to hit. I had to get, I had to read at certain public readings that, that were there. I had to get invited to those. There was a new, uh, uh, Raven Chronicles I had to get published in. Jack Straw Productions I had to get a, a grant and I was like moving the pieces around on the board and I was very close to getting the prize which is a federal grant where they pay you to write your you know poems about blackberry bushes in Cascadia um, <laughs> I was so close and then I got converted <laughs> so, so I got baptized on a Sunday and, and then the Monday uh, my, the, on an NPR program my poetry was on this uh, NPR and that was like supposed to be the grand moment before I got my grant so I remember this, and I remember how all that worked. There's a lot of politics, and and this is exactly how it works. If I want, if I wanted to get onto um, the Gospel Coalition or go to like one of these big refcon, <laughs> there's like a very distinct process I'd have to uh, follow. And I think it's very much like the business model, right? People talk about, okay, you want to get to 800 people. Here's how you do it. And I actually think I think that you take that those the advice. I think you can do it. If we decided to have a thousand-person church, I think we could do it. But then, what 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 would we have, right? Yes. What would we sell out on in order to get there? A mess. <laughs> but hey, I would have a Ferrari. <laughs> I'd be like, "Okay, kids, you got to walk down to church. Dad's taking the car." Yeah. Um, and would you have a lot of disciples who are just an inch yeah. deep and you know a mile wide, Yeah, because we, you know, yeah. Exactly, because how many of you guys have ever gone to a, a big church, like a big evangelical church? And do you remember seeing the same people on a regular basis? Sort of. Only if you knew them beforehand. Only if you knew beforehand. Yeah, I'd be at the same service with my friends, and we'd still have to meet at the taco truck like down the street because I couldn't find each other inside the Mars Hill. <laughs> and like, it's not, it's not what we're here for. And I think Israel... We are the new Israel. We fall for this kind of nonsense all the time. Okay, We're trying to build something, our own kingdoms, or we're trying to build kingdoms like the world has them, and we're trying to go about it in this way. Because um, you can see in Jesus' day how Israel is still doing this. They're taking things, right? They're manipulating the game, the system. They're, they're sell, sold out to Rome, and they're willing to take whatever they need to do, uh, take Jesus' life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, take bribes, do, do whatever they need to do in order to keep their kingdom. And this is what the Reformation was all about. Their kingdom was their belly. Calvin said the biggest reason people didn't want to become reformers is because they would lose their livelihoods. And there were stories, right? I mean, if, you're a pre, if, if you have a nice, cushy position at uh, Wittenberg at a, as a professorship, and you're going you're gonna to risk losing all that just because... You know, the mass is not good. I mean, there were a lot of people who, who do that and still do that. Um, and so churches need to be anti-fragile um, is, is the phrase that's going around now, anti-fragile. And I'm only moderately comfortable with that. 
But so if the church is start can be manipulated and the, and the ministers can be manipulated because they're afraid of losing their livelihoods, right? If we're afraid of losing our building, if we're afraid of losing our ties, if we're afraid of losing whatever standing we have, you're willing to compromise on what you're going to say and not preach the whole counsel of God. And I think, I think what Israel never was, was not at this point, it was not anti-fragile, <laughs> right? It, it, it kowtowed to the world. And, and the desires of the flesh in order to have something like the nations. And I, I think we have to be very careful uh, as this church continues to grow to avoid these kinds of things. Now, back to the word. Okay, so um, Saul, Saul is the false start. So he, he initially, I would say, is a very humble man. Now, why would I say that Saul is a very humble man at the start of the story? Hiding in the baggage. Hiding in the baggage. Okay. First off, he, he hides in the baggage. He doesn't he doesn't feel adequate to the job. I think it's, at his first call he says, you know, who me? I'm, you know, yeah. lead this, these tribe of Israel. Yeah, which is actually what Moses says. It's actually, he's uh, echoing Moses. Moses says, why me? Um, I, I'm the right. least of these. Right. And there are several judges who, or no, Gideon, I'm sorry. Gideon is the one who says yeah. that. Yeah, it's Gideon. So he, he thinks he's from a modest tribe. He hides. Okay, and then after he becomes king and wins a battle, what do his followers want to do? Immediately. There's a group of people that were like, who is this? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. This guy's not going to lead us. And then after the battle, his followers want to go find those guys and kill them. <laughs> but he refuses to do that. Right? He shows a great deal of humility. He's very much like Gideon. He's off to a good start. But then he has a series of falls. Okay, so he's ordered to put a nation to the right to the sword. The holy ban is put on one nation. And you guys remember this? This was a sermon, right? Uh, from Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25, that there, the Amalekites, um, God had it out for them, right? He had a plan to destroy them. He's like, I will not forget you, and he has not forgotten them. And now is the time to take them out. And so he tells Saul to wipe them out. Okay, now think about this for a second, right? Think about how that might apply in modern day, right? We think, do we, does do the communists in Russia think that God has forgotten what they did? Yes, they do, but they realize. <laughs> right? I mean, think of all the things they did to the Christians, let alone their own people, right? I mean, think about China. God's not going to forget these things. Um, I, I'm very comforted by how long God's memory is um, um, and what he chooses to forget when he forgives us for our sins, but also how he will uphold his people even if he has to wait for a while, right? Sandbag them in the alley months later. <laughs> he will get his man. Um, but what, so why, what, what is Saul's reason for not actually putting everyone to the sword that he's supposed to? The given reason or the real one? Yeah, he what does that say? He was afraid. He was afraid? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The he was afraid. people wanted to bring these to sacrifice to right. the yeah. Lord. He points away from himself, right? Now, does that remind you of anyone? It's those people you gave me. It's that wife you gave me, Adam said, right? It's that wife you gave me. So what you see here, and this is, this is really important for our study. Look at how many different things are going on in the life of Saul. He's like Gideon in the positive sense, and then he's also like Gideon in the negative sense. He's like Adam. Okay, He's like Moses. <laughs> he's like all these different people. 
at the same time. And this is what I love about the Word of God and why we have to read it carefully and slowly and thoughtfully and read it a lot because it's hard to catch all these things. Um, there's a lot of things going on in the life of Saul because before he ever tries to put David to death, the innocent man who actually saves his Israel, he tries to do the same thing to his son Jonathan. So they're so he's the evil father trying to put to death his own son. And what they're, do, he's, they're doing there is foreshadowing that a greater Jonathan is going to come. And a greater Jonathan does come, who's going to be the next king, and displaces Jonathan. Jonathan's one of my favorite characters, the poor guy. What a bad, bad situation he was in. Okay, so the first fall is this ban that he's, he's supposed to put on that he doesn't follow through with. Then he blames the people. Okay, So then what, what does he do next? Samuel says, hey, I will meet you at such and such a place at such and such a time, and we will do this thing. He doesn't thing. wait. He doesn't wait, okay? And then he, he says, your God, several times during that passage, not our God, which is very telling. And then um, he's, he's very worried about how he looks in front of everybody else. He says, go with me so the elders see us together. <laughs> and Samuel is not going to have any of that. The rug gets torn, and Samuel says, so will the kingdom be torn from you. Okay, and so what is the? He goes on and has other falls. Okay, right? He continues to descend further and further. Can you guys name some other things that happened to poor Saul? At the very end of his life, he consulted a witch. He consulted a witch, the witch of Endor. Right, right at the end there. Yeah, right at the end. Instead of going to Yahweh, he goes to the witch of Endor because he wants to talk to all people to Samuel. Right. And when the ghost is holier than you are, then you got problems. <laughs> <laughs> right so there's Samuel enjoying himself in Abraham's bosom in Hades just like chilling and then all of a sudden he's like what am I doing here why are you talking to me please leave me alone um, and then at the very end of his life you know the, the, the account of his death is a little obscure who actually killed Saul um, I tried to sort of hop and skip and jump over this when I was doing the because it could be very distracting but, I mean, it says he stabs himself. It says his, right. his armor bearer doesn't want to stab him. The, the, he gets shot with arrows. Right. Uh, and this other guy comes in and lies and says that he did it. Right. And, yeah, but, I mean, it's very, very, very sad. But he also is echoing one of the other judges because uh, he, he doesn't want to be killed by a woman. Mm. Um, yeah. Isn't that, doesn't that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Forget the details. Anyway. So Saul, it's very bad. Down, 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 down he goes. Okay, so then he's the false start. So who's the first decent king that Israel has? His name is? David. David, okay. And what was he doing um, while all this other stuff was going on with Saul? How was David raised? With seven other brothers, and he was the shepherd. Okay, the does, his, yeah, does his family seem wealthy? I think in their way, probably. Yeah, I, I would say extremely wealthy. I also think he's 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 used to visiting his family in Moab, and I think that he's used to working with Gentiles. I think partially why he's so accepting of Gentiles throughout his ministry is because he actually grew up around a lot of them. Um, because it's it's very easy. He takes his family there. It says that he goes amongst them throughout his uh, difficulties. So I think he actually... He was raised as a shepherd. He's raised as the youngest brother. He's raised in, in this rough and tumble way. Because um, as, as my son Lewis will testify, it's nice being the younger brother. Um, I was told last year at VBS 
by a pastor there that he's, they've never seen a kid with more swagger than Lewis. And they're like, how many older brothers does this kid have? Because he just looks like that kind of kid who's used to taking orders and giving them. <laughs> um, and so I, like, I, I think of that now when I think of David. Just David, and, and you see when he goes and visits them at the camp, you see automatically they're like giving each other a bunch of, bunch of you know, back and forth there. And his brother's like, oh, you're always doing this kind of thing. And he's like, what, man? I just killed lions and bears and stuff. Now I'm going to kill a giant. What's up? Okay, so um, in the grand story of David and Goliath, if we're going to use it typologically, okay, who's, are you David or are you Goliath? Or what? Who are you in this story? Everybody likes to think they're David, right? Cowering Israel. Yeah, we're the cowering Israel. <laughs> we're the ones who don't want to go out and fight. And, and Jesus is David, and Satan's sin and death is Goliath, okay? Now, why do you think David goes and gets five stones? I love this part. Um, why? Why five stones? Why five smooth stones? What if you miss? Yeah. <laughs> Right? I love it. He gets five because he's a smart warrior. It may take more than one, but then all he needed is one. So he has faith in God, but I like that he's also prepared. Um, and then what, what God demonstrates is that it only it only takes one. And I think this is like Jonah. You know, It takes three days to walk across Nineveh. And then there's this detail in Jonah where it says that Jonah walked, he went a day and a half <laughs> preaching. And it's like he only got halfway through the city, it, it, really, and before you, and the whole city is overturned, right? They're all, they all come to believe the word spreads very quickly. He didn't even, even need to walk across the entire city. David didn't even need all five stones. Um, and I think that this demonstrates, right, the, the faith, but preparedness, okay? Um, this is why, like, people, people are like, well, I don't need to study apologetics. God says that uh, when I, right, he tells the apostles that whenever you're going to speak, this Holy Spirit will give you what you need. And so people go and they do, like, they, they debate with it atheists and believers. They try to testify to family members, and they're ill-equipped. Um, and what they do is they rely too much upon the Lord in, in this supernatural way that God has not promised to do, okay? David knows that no, he's not, he's like Abraham. He doesn't know what God is going to do, but he knows that in, in God, he will be victorious. And he believes it, and he's willing to die trying, right? And that's kind of like Daniel later is like, well, you know, we could die, we could not, I don't know, it's up to God. Um, the three that are thrown into the fiery furnace as well, they're like, well, this is what we're going to do. Um, and this is something, Polycarp is also the same way. He's an old man, and he's like 100 years old almost, and they're telling him to, there's like a lion there who's going to eat him. And he's like, why, why would I turn my back on a God that's been faithful up till now? He could stop this, he could let me be eaten by this thing, I don't really care. <laughs> I'm not going to renounce it. And I think that this is something important for us to understand, okay? We need to be prepared. But that per the preparation isn't what saves us. God is what saves us. And if, if we go and we have to use all five stones and die trying, God is still with us. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay? And I think people sometimes misapply these stories, making themselves the hero, and as if God is always going to deliver David from every Goliath that he ever fights. Now, can you guys think of a story where David is not delivered against a Goliath? Josiah. Josiah. Josiah goes out to battle. Tell, yeah, tell us. Goes out to the righteous King Josiah. <laughs> goes out to battle the enemies of God, and 
dies. And he takes a mortal wound, gets carried back to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and dies. And God's like, yeah, actually it was my intention that you die because I wanted to spare you from seeing the fall of your kingdom. Yeah. So it was my mercy to you. Yeah. But I did not give you that battle. <laughs> so, I mean, that's something where, right? How many, of, how many of us, we typically think, well, we lost, and so God's not with us. Right? I mean, and this has been my point about the, the generation that fell in the desert. Their punishment was that they did not get to go into the promised land. Uh, what, their punishment is not that they all necessarily go to hell. Right? Because, and, and so things that happen to us in this world are a result of Satan's inner death, sometimes directly from our own hands. Sometimes because of others, but God is using all of it in order to bring about his purposes. And, and all Davids do not defeat all Goliaths, okay? You are not David uh, in, this, in this story, okay? You, you are Israel cowering there, <laughs> waiting for a savior who will, in fact, win the battle for you. Okay, so David uh, is anointed king. And, yeah, okay, so here, let's go back. Saul. So way back in our study of Genesis, we talked about the three-story house, remember? We talked about the garden, we talked about the land, and we talked about the seas. Okay, so you got the garden, the land, the seas, this three-story house, and what you see with Saul is that he sins in each area. He sins in the garden when he sacrifices without waiting for Samuel. He sins in the land when he makes his men fast during a battle and then seeks to kill Jonathan. He, he sins against his brothers. And then he sins in the world when he spares Agag and, and the uh, and the plunder of the Amalekites. So just like that threefold fall at the very beginning of Genesis, you see that Saul has a threefold fall. And, and this is also, I, I keep saying it, these are the patterns we're going to see. Um, there are lots of people who are going to fall, and they're going to fall in each area. They're going to fall in the sanctuary, they're going to fall against their brothers, and they're going to fall with unbelievers. And, and, and this is now a cycle that you can see um, within the lives of individual men or within Israel itself in a generation that will do this, okay? So it's important to understand these patterns because it makes it a lot easier to figure out what the stories are about, right? When you're reading David and, you're, and, you, and you know about the garden, you know about the three-story house, you know about um, Moses, and you know about Abraham, and you know about the law, and you know about sacrifices, all this stuff begins to accumulate, and when you read, you understand a great deal more than you did before. Uh, especially when you get down, this is why people don't read the prophets and and, and profit much from it. Um, because they're just completely unfamiliar with who, who are the Moabites and who cares, right? Uh, because they're in Isaiah, Jeremiah, they'll be talking about these nations and and they're, and they're talking about the Edomites and they're talking about these people. And and if you if you're familiar with the stories, then the prophets make a great deal of sense. And you're like, wow, they're bringing up something from like way back, uh, and God has not forgotten. And, and, and that's part of the, the Deuteronomistic history and the latter prophets. The point is that God has a long memory, okay? And he is never far from you. And he remembers those nations, and he uses them, he himself uses them typologically when he's talking to the prophets. And so you can understand the prophets a lot better when you understand these stories. Then if you understand the prophets a lot better, then when you get to books like Revelation, it makes a great deal more sense internally. Because everybody in this generation, modern Christians, are always looking outside of the Bible to try to understand the book of Revelation. But really what you need to do is learn all the stories in the Old Testament, then learn the prophets, and then you go into the New Testament and it makes it a lot easier to understand. Does that make sense? 
That's partially why we're doing this. Do you guys have any questions? What did I miss? Well, <laughs> let us go back to the beginning. You missed the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's all I got. And it, we only have five minutes. Would you pray for us? Welcome. You came just in time. <laughs> That's why I came here. Lord God, thank you so much for preserving your word and granting us your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, we need more insight. We need to walk in your footsteps, and we need to do that uh, through in your spirit and by understanding what you meant in your word. And we thank you for these teachings from your Holy Spirit. We pray now that you help us to uh, chew them and meditate on them and allow your spirit to speak to us. In your name, Jesus, amen. 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 All right, thanks, everybody.